When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wondering what's next in your business or personal life? Welcome to Success to Significance, Life After Breaking Through Glass Ceilings, a podcast dedicated to helping you with all of life's challenges, discoveries, and opportunities. Whether you're seeking a new career, retirement, or simply wanting to make an impact in your community or the world, join Jen Duplessis and her guests as they explore how to start, what to do when you're in the thick of a change or growth, and how to leave a mark in this world after breaking through your next achievement. You are moments away from the aha you've been seeking. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Success to Significance. I'm your host, Jen Duplessis, and today I am so excited. I have the great Lee Steinberg with me. And for those of you that don't know who he is, let me tell you a little bit about him. He has a long pedigree, a long bio, and I'm going to shorten it as quickly as I can here, Lee. Um, He has represented many of the most successful athletes and coaches in football, basketball, baseball, hockey, boxing, golf probably Olympics too. We'll have to see how that goes, including the number one overall pick in the NFL draft um, for an unprecedented record holding eight times in conjunction with 62 total first round draft picks. Um, He's represented other notable athletes um, all over the place. Yep. And here's Olympians with an uh, and what's the other thing I want to tell you is that you have you also have a record number of 12 Hall of Famers, including Howie Long, Steve Young, Tori, Troy Aikman, Warren Moon. And I mean, it's just so it's so impressive. But what's most impressive about you, Lee, um, in the time that we've known each other in the last couple of years, seeing each other at different events is the impact you're having in the world. And that's what I really want to talk about. So we're going to talk a little bit about athletics and and professional stuff, but I really want to talk about what is so close to your heart and what you're really trying to do in your life. So welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Okay, so let me just start with this. So, you know, professional sports, uh, you know, when we think of professional sports, we think of money and we think of fame. But you focused in such a way, and I've seen you speak about this before, about making an impact through sports. So when we remove all of the glamour that comes with this professional, you know, an athlete, can you give us one suggestion for someone regarding how to apply this sports mentality that you see day in, day out into someone else's daily life so that they could have enjoyment and happiness and feel self-worth? success and make an impact? Well, I think that if you take those qualities to allow someone to be successful in sports and you apply it to all of our lives, it would be postponing current gratification for future success. It would be work ethic. It would be teamwork. It -hmm. would be taking really intense and and confused sets of information and employing them in real time. It would be courage under pressure. 
And it would be the ability in adversity uh, when things have not gone well uh, to put that in the past, compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, and elevate your level of performance in critical circumstances. So those are qualities that enable athletes to perform well, but they're equally applicable to all of our lives. Um, and what I found was that athletes, because of their high profile, were able to trigger imitative behavior in other people. And that made them uh, able to be role models and to have an impact on other people. So I found if they would go back to the high school community that helped shape them and set up a scholarship fund or work with a boys and girls club or a church, they could retrace their roots and make a, a difference in that community and then go to the college community and set up a scholarship fund like a Troy Aikman did at UCLA. Um, they could bond with the alums and then at the pro level, find the leading political figures, community leaders, and business figures, and set up a, a program that would respond to some community need. So work done or running back for Atlanta and Tampa, just put the 200th single mother and her family in the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and moving the families uh, in and then outfitting the home. So it's athletes changing lives. Yeah. And that's something that we all can do. So they're not simply modeling the behavior. They're modeling the fact that each of us in our own lives can make a profound difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. Yeah. I, I love everything you said. I mean, there's so many uh, little great nuggets that are in there. I think one of the things I want to ask, so um, I want to ask you this, and then and then I can't wait to ask you the next question, but, but uh, you know, when someone comes into an athletic program, you know, and we think about, you know, like the optimists or when they're little, you know, they're not talking about giving back to the community. When, what's the trigger? Where, what happens or how do we have to form people to start realizing that in giving, they will receive so much more back. And it's not just about the money and it's not just about the fame or the stats and, and things like that. I mean, how does that trigger happen? because I don't know that every athlete feels that way. I think it starts with parents. So mm -hmm. I had a father who raised my brothers and I with two core values. One was to treasure relationships, especially family. Mm -hmm. And the second was that we had an obligation to make a positive difference in the world and to help people who couldn't help themselves. And he would say there's a corollary to that which is that when you're looking for someone to make a change, as small as picking a piece of trash up off the floor, or as major as fighting racism or rolling back climate change or fighting domestic violence, mm -hmm. um, and you will keep assuming that they or them are going to solve the problem, the amorphous they, older people, political figures, he would say, you could wait forever, son. The they is you. Mm -hmm. You are the they. Yes. So it's parents imbuing 
their children and athletes with a sense of responsibility that you can look to other people, but at the end of the day, it's you. And people can apply that principle in their own uh, ways. Uh, parenting well is a great contribution to the world. Yes. <laughs> but for those who have more capacity mm. and athletes who come into your home larger than life. And uh, for example, today, 71 of the top 100 television shows last year were NFL football. So mm -hmm. it's not only the most popular sport, it's the most popular form of televised entertainment in this country. Mm -hmm. That means that those football quarterbacks are the movie stars of today. They mm -hmm. have profound profile and come into our homes larger than life. That gives them the ability to tackle all sorts of problems. So <clears throat> let's suppose the problem is bullying. Um, if you have pro athletes and college athletes talk to high school athletes who sit atop the food chain yeah. in the high school, right. and all of a sudden the, the football player puts his arm around someone who's overweight or someone who's got a hair lip or someone who stutters, they can change the culture of that high school very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Just with a simple thing, you know, there's a, there's a friend of both of ours who was just at my home a couple of weeks ago for a mastermind. And, you know, it's just so neat to see the dynamic of, of, you know, where he comes from. And, you know, I was, I was blessed because he said to me, you know, Jen, you're a lot like I am, but I don't see it in myself. You know, I was an athlete too. I wasn't professional, but I was an athlete. And I think that there is a, a temperament that comes along with being an athlete and being part of a team that just inherently, you know, goes through the rest of your life. And I, I think that that's, you know, really powerful um, that that can say, you know, one person can say something or do something that can change the trajectory of some other child's life forever. What sport right. were you, Jen? Yeah. Um, well, I, I was tennis. Yeah, I was tennis and I ran long distance track. Yeah. I so, ran cross country too. So they, they, yeah, yeah. What that, what that proves is you can suffer well. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you, and you solve problem solve on, okay, I'm thinking of too much about my breathing. Now I'm thinking about my steps. Now I'm thinking about my arms. Right. And you're just constantly problem solving. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it's really, it's good. And all my kids were, you know, I, I told you, you know, a couple of weeks ago, my son played football. He was a quarterback in, in college and at a D2 school, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I think you inherently see it. So let me ask you another question. You know, where where did the impetus for this start for you? Why why was uh, well? Tell us a little bit about that. So you're in school, right? You're in high school. You have this great father who's you know teaching you these beautiful values in life. And tell us what happened. You went to college. What did you do? Did you play sports? And then how did you start changing your mindset to say, I can't do this alone. I've got to get out there and tell everybody about it. Um. <clears throat> Well, I went to UCLA my first year, but then I went to Berkeley in the 60s, and it was the change when yes. long hair and rock music and um, herbal substances and uh, uh, yeah. political values and anti-Vietnam, it all was happening there. Yeah. And 
uh, I ended up student body president and the governor of California was Ronald Reagan. Wow. And every time we demonstrated, he cracked down and I learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating and politics from dealing with governor, later president Reagan. And so uh, I was always involved in student politics. I was always a student by president in high school and college and law school. And uh, then I went on to be a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm. Mm -hmm. And they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students was Steve Bartkowski. And in 1975, he asked uh, if I would represent him. And he was the first player picked in the 1975 draft. And there really wasn't sports agency then. So I was looking for a profession where I could make a difference. Mm -hmm. And it was in that first experience when we got to Atlanta and there were Cleek's lights. We're going to sign the contract. It's the largest contract in NFL history. We're going to sign the next day. So I've been in Berkeley. We fly to Atlanta. There are Cleek lights flashing in the sky. A huge crowd pressed up against a police line. And the first thing we hear is we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and an attorney have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live. Um, for a special news interview. And I looked at Bartkowski like Dorothy looked at uh, Toto when they got to Munchkinland. And I saw for the first time the idol worship and veneration that athletes were held in communities across the country. And I thought, wow, I could have athletes be role models and I could have a more powerful impact working with them and actually changing the world than I could in politics or being a DA or anything else. And that's when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of interesting because your path was going to be, you know, political, et cetera. Now it's interesting because you're, you said about negotiation and I know this is a, a big topic of yours. You've talked about it several times. Um, so and, and so obviously you're as an attorney, you're, you're going to get negotiate no matter what job you have. But in this particular world, you know, the negotiation is really um, very unique and very different uh, than I imagine what it is in everyday life. What are the and one or two techniques in negotiating that whether you're a salesperson, whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, whether you're you know, the a founder of a charity and you're negotiating something, what are what are one or two tips and techniques that you would recommend for negotiation? The most important skill in life is the ability to listen. It's the ability to draw another person out, cut below the surface and the surface responses and to draw them out and to get ultimately, as you peel back the layers of the onion to their deepest anxieties and fears and greatest hopes and dreams, you need to understand what that other person feels in terms of values about short-term economic gain, long-term economic security, mm -hmm. spiritual values, family considerations, geographical factors, mm -hmm. autonomy, public recognition, autonomy, 
whatever it is that's critically important to them, you need to draw out, not the surface responses they'll give you, but what they deeply feel. Their yeah. deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams. If you can put yourself in the other person's mm. heart and mind and see the world the way they see it, you can navigate your way through life gracefully. But the point is that you, in order to craft a win-win scenario, you have to figure out how you're going to fulfill your own needs and goals, but also fulfill the other person's goals. So you'll craft a win-win scenario. Most of us negotiate repetitively. So husbands negotiate with wives, parents negotiate with kids. Um, we are in a profession where we negotiate with the same general manager or the same vendor over and over and over again. Occasionally we buy cars, we buy houses, but usually we're negotiating repetitively. So you have to establish a paradigm of cooperation where there's trust and where your your honesty is unquestioned. Um, in my field, it's all oral. So we'll make a, a complex deal based on it's a deal. So you have to understand you can trust the person. And if your neck, uh, the neck of the other person's exposed somehow, uh, you don't step on it. But right. my point is that you have to be able to create an atmosphere of trust around another person so they feel confident to tell you what they really feel. Otherwise, you're going to waste endless amounts of time never getting to what their true point of view is and what will truly engage them. Um, so... What are some strategies for that? You know, I, I recall, uh, you know, several years ago, I was, it's a long story, but I was challenged with something. And, and I said, you know, my new word for the year is curiosity. I'm going to be more curious about people because I found myself, you know, looking uh, asking questions and already knowing what the answer was. So I really didn't hear the the question. Right. And I was just on to the next, like you're saying, not listening. And I said, you know, hey, let me just, you know, this year it's going to be about curiosity. It's going to be about asking follow up questions. And I call it dot, dot, dot. Right. Rather than how are you today? Period. Great period. But what do you mean? How? What's good? What's good to you, right? And asking these questions, is that part of what you're talking about? How do you peel away? How do you peel those away? Is it is it simply with the curiosity of letting the person talk about themselves in, in a good way? I like that. But getting to know them better? Or is it more probing questions that pull that out? It's probing questions, but it's also listening. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean being present in mm -hmm. this moment. Yeah. At this particular moment, mm -hmm. I don't know what happened yesterday. I have no idea what's coming later. I don't know where my phone is. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening outside of this. Every bit of energy and consciousness I have is... Mm -hmm. Right. tuned into the sound of your voice. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else to me. 
So when you're speaking, I'm listening to the text and subtext of what's going on with you. And when you're asking me a question, I'm actually thinking about it before I give you a response. So people say to me all the time, well, what did you hear? Yes, I'm actually thinking about how to give you an intelligent response. So it's being present here and it's asking the next question because if that wasn't deep enough and I didn't get it, it's what does that trigger uh, in me? And, and what can that lead to? And it's asking the next question and it's looking at the person and really being engaged. And yeah. it's not just using uh, your brain, but your sense of uh, empathy and feeling uh, about, about the rest thing. And it's thinking about experiences I might have that would relate to yours or how to do, but it's not thinking about the next thing you're going to say. Right. <laughs> Right. And I, you know, and I love that you've said that too, because, and I, and I hope everyone heard that because if you're listening and you're not receiving the information that you need to be able to go to the next step, then that's your cue to ask follow-up questions to go deeper. That's basically what you've said. And, and, and that really is the resolution to it. You know, it's not just asking the question and getting somewhat of an answer and thinking in your mind, well, I'll just ask more about that later. It's taking the time to really demonstrate, you know, so that I fully understand what you're talking about. Let me ask you a follow-up question, right? right. I, I love that. Yeah, I love and, that. Thank you. Look, when you're negotiating, there's a couple quick tips. If you're making an argument and there's resistance and do not push the losing argument to the end. Do not lock the other party in if clearly you're, you're not able to convince them. Mm -hmm. Because once you lock someone else in on a position, young men may turn old, summer may turn to fall, and they're locked in. So take a break. Figure out another way to motivate it. Second, if you have said all you need to say on the subject, be comfortable with silence. Um, nothing else needs to come out of your mouth if you have said everything you need to say. Again, young men can turn old. Uh, seasons can change. I don't need to say more. Don't blurt out something because you're uncomfortable with the fact that you're si silent. Okay? Don't um, um, uh, we can't afford deadlock in what we do. Your ego cannot be on the line in this negotiation. You've got to bleed all that emotion out of you. You may have a client. Um, it's about that person. Um, do not be personally offended uh, by something. If this is about business, it's about business. Um, you're not hurting my feelings. The fact you have a position, you have a role to play here. I understand that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I respect the fact that you've got a, a boss you may have to please or someone else you have to do. I respect the fact that you don't want to pay any more money than, than you have to. I'm not angry about that. Um, and lastly, be creative, okay? 
So we haven't solved this in a traditional way. Can we think outside the square? And lastly, be resilient. In other words, there'll be reverses in this process where we'll get pushed back. We'll think that we can't solve this. Take a break. Um, uh, come back. Try again. You must be resilient. Um, we're going to get this done somehow. Yeah, I think that's I think that's beautiful. And I think um, this goes back to the comment that you made some time ago is that immediate gratification, right, can hold you back because you're just so hungry for that immediate gratification that you feel like it has to be resolved in the moment. And, you know, which I was is why, which is why, Jan, and I don't mean this as a stereotype, but Asians tend to out negotiate Western people because they have a sense of time, which is uh, eternal. Yes. And, you know, an American will go to Asia. This deal's got to be done right now. You know, we have to be able to get on the plane and come back and say we did it, where the where the Asian is like, um, <laughs> has yeah, a I need to sleep on it. Time. Yeah, I need to say, I was just talking to one of my uh, team members today and I said, you know, she said, I really wish you would have called me back last night because we were talking about something. And I said, I said to her, listen, let's talk in the morning. Uh, we'll talk about this in the morning. Everything will be fine. Let's just talk in the morning. Well, she worried all night long and I came up with solutions, right? By ha by being able to sleep overnight. And I said, she said, uh, you know, okay, now I understand why you do this. <laughs> you will hold me back because mine is sleeping. I sleep and I wake up and I've got all the answers. They've all come, you know, overnight. It's amazing. So, that, so that's psychological. And what yeah. happens is while you sleep, your brain is processing and yeah. it's doing what you couldn't do in your conscious state because you've mm -hmm. got too much stimulus. Too much going on. Yeah. Too much going on. And I always go to bed. Think, you know, when I go to bed, I'm praying about it and saying, okay, so, you know, these are the things I want to think about. And when they're top of mind, I get, I get a uh, resolution. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. I want to ask you about, um, the achievements that you've had, because I mean, I can't even read them all. There are so many achievements that you've received. Um, and it's not, and, you know, of course, the humanitarian award that you just received, you know, a couple of weeks ago out in Anaheim when I was there. But you've received so many different things. You've been in so many different uh, magazines, on um, so many different television shows, et cetera. You have all these achievements. But what happens or or maybe Maybe you can share with us this one time where you were at the lowest of low, right? The very lowest that you were. How did you push through that mindset instead of giving up and saying, I, you know, I'm going to throw it all away. I'm going to be done because people that are listening to this podcast, you know, they're thinking about making adjustments. They've made it through something um, or they're starting to break through that ceiling. Maybe it's losing weight. Maybe it's a, um, a relationship. Maybe it's business. How how do you keep going even though it hurts as you're breaking through this glass ceiling? Well, first of all, let me make the point that that whether it's newspaper clippings or awards, uh, I bifurcate all that, and that's all public, and mm -hmm. that has very little to do with uh, with my private life. Um, mm -hmm which is none of that relieves me of the responsibility to be a nice person, to take out the garbage, 
to have real relationships. Um, in other words, the newspaper clippings will fade, the awards will go away. And what I'm left it with at the end is, was I a good father? Was I a good son? Was I a good in relationships? Was I a good friend uh, when people needed a friend? Did I help people and try to make a difference in the world? Yeah. So um, that's all ephemeral. And uh, I mean, it, it's nice, but but that's not the real core of, of my life. I struggled with alcohol and hit a point where um, my only uh, cogent thought um, about 13 years ago was where I could find uh, more vodka. And I pretty much had uh, closed my office and, um, and uh, moved, moved out of my house and I'm back at my parents' house. And so, um, and there was destruction, there was detritus and so, the question was, uh, and I had an epiphany, which is that I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur, and I wasn't, um, uh, I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany, and I wasn't, um, I didn't have a cancer, and I wasn't living up to my father's admonitions. And um, so, um, but I was raised in a way which was optimistic and I could see past all that. Mm -hmm. And I thought there's gotta be light at the end of this tunnel. And I joined, went to Sober Living and I joined a 12 step program and, and I got help and uh, I didn't do it alone. Um, and I felt like Sisyphus pushing the big ball up the hill in the yeah. Greek uh, mythology. Yeah. And every time I pushed the ball up, it would roll back a little bit and I keep pushing. <laughs> um, but luckily I had optimism and and hope. And so you if someone's out there struggling and uh, hopeless and despondent because of problems with substances, um, <clears throat> just know there's help. And uh, it, it takes some work, but, but there are people out there who will help you. There are 12-step programs with unique fellowships that you can uh, get to. And uh, and life can be much happier. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a vision, a sense of, of resilience. So if you're struggling with weight, you have to be able to visualize that step by step you you can get there and for me it's uh when i'm dieting it's uh um it's not like i'll never be able to have pizza again it's just <laughs> right. right now it's the that's discipline not, yeah, not it's just, food. That's, yeah it's not my food you know and it's uh yeah. um now, I'll never be able to drink alcohol again, but you know what? There's about 9 million other fun things I can do. Yeah, I love that outlook too. I think that's really important, you know, is that we get we get so trapped into that. And really, that's that's sort of what we were talking about earlier with athletes. You know, I think that that becomes their definition of who they are. 
right? And when they leave that, they also struggle in a certain way because it was their alcoholism. It was their drug of choice, right? The fame, the notoriety, the the competition, you know, all of those. And when that's lost, they're trying to fill that void. And that's where the struggle comes. And I think that happens with any of us. That's why this podcast is called Success to Significance, because I had my own beautiful, long four decade career, you know, being one of the top loan officers in the country. And that was my definition. And when I I left that, I knew that I wanted to do something significant, make an impact. But I was lost in that translation because it wasn't the debt, the accolades, the titles, all those things weren't there. And I and I kept saying, okay, what is it? I know I want to make a difference, but what is it? You know, and so there was a challenge there. But I love that you're saying you're not alone because I did find I wasn't alone. I found that lots and lots of women my age group have worked really hard for years and are making that transition. And so we all started talking about what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? How can we support one another? And I, I love that adage. So thank you for sharing that. And I know that was deeply rooted. So I really appreciate it. My father was an alcoholic, so I can certainly understand the situation, you know, being raised in an alcoholic family. Um, I want to ask you, well, let's talk a little bit about Jerry Maguire, but I want to end with something else, something more fun. Um, let's talk a little bit about Jerry Maguire. So I know that your life was the inspiration for the movie, for the movie. I'm curious about what was the most interesting thing about the process, because I know you were on set sort of giving some tips and, and things like that. What was the most interesting, not funny, not poignant, just for you is like, okay, they're going to do this because, you know, we know Frank Shankwitz, right? When Frank said, uh, it's a likeness of my life, <laughs> meaning it's not exactly my life. So what was so interesting about the process of getting on state on, on set and learning, you know, watching your life fold unfold in front of you? Well, well I think the first thing was Cameron Crowe just following me for uh, mm. a couple of years where he went to the draft in 1993 where I had the first pick and he just followed me and, and I told him stories and he went to, um, uh, the league meetings in 1993 and was a fly on the wall and he went to pro scouting day at usc and he came and sat in my office and he went to games with me um and then they shot uh, uh photos out of my office and they they took my yellow legal pads and they took my clothes <laughs> and they replicated yeah. uh, everything and then i i think taking cuba gooding jr um who won an Oscar uh, down to uh, Phoenix for the Super Bowl and making pretend he was a wide receiver and my client all week. Um, so he had to <laughs> hang out with uh, Desmond Howard and the yeah. rest of it. And, and mm. then I think betting the script to make sure that that the dialogue was right and the look was right. But, um, and uh, there was... Uh, um, uh, there was a scene that I was supposed to uh, be in for the bachelor party, and uh, and there was a toast I was supposed to give that was like insulting to the Jerry Maguire uh, character. And Tom Cruise came over to me and he said, uh, you don't look comfortable. And I said, I'm not doing this scene. He said, you don't want to do it? I said, no, because... You're the biggest movie star in the country. I'm doing this as myself. 
And <laughs> people are going to think I was mean and nasty to you. I'm not doing it. And yeah. so uh, people might think it was crazy to turn down some extra scenes, but uh, I, I didn't want to be caught on camera doing that. And yeah. um, originally I was supposed to play his brother, uh, but we went on vacation. And uh, so there's a lot of life up there. I agreed with Cameron, I wouldn't talk about what exactly was me and uh, what wasn't, but mm -hmm. uh, it was a long process and he went it's everywhere crazy. and uh, uh, met a whole bunch of people in in uh, in my life. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, following you for three years, that's a lot of research <laughs> and recon to put this together. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's very slow and deliberate when it, uh, when comes, it comes to... to to making a uh, making a movie originally, um, uh, they were looking at Winona Ryder and uh, and Tom Hanks for the lead oh, role. Wow! Uh, but um, Tom Hanks had that Wilson movie mm -hmm. uh, with the volleyball, uh, and Winona yeah. Hanks something happened to her, so it had been different, but. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Is there um, is there a scene that, well, first of all, you said a couple of scenes. So were you at, did you make some cameos in the movie? I haven't watched it for a while. Now I want to go back and watch did it. Work? Did you make a few cameos in the movie? Yeah, um, uh, at the end, um, uh, there's a scene where uh, J Jerry Maguire uh, is backstage and uh, uh, the Rod Tidwell character is on Roy yeah. Firestone, and yeah. he says he's not going to break down, but he breaks down. And we're backstage. It's Troy, Katerina Vett, and myself, and I introduce uh, Jerry Maguire to Troy Aikman. Oh, okay, got it. I and I know not, that scene. I know that. Not not to not to quit my day job. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I know that scene. Yeah. And it's funny because now that I know you, I didn't, I, you know what, I didn't even think to go back and watch a little bit of it before this interview. Cause I'm like, Oh, I know him. And I, and I uh, didn't think well, about that. So now in, uh, and then we shot the bachelor party scene. I mean, what was so interesting is that then I went on and uh, I worked uh, with Oliver Stone on any given Sunday. Right. But right. what I didn't understand is that you were like, I was, I'm in the background of the bachelor party scene. What I didn't understand is you show up like at three in the afternoon, uh, you know, and you have a, a trailer and, and they don't shoot till two in the morning. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's a great experience. It's something that you, you know, can remember for the rest of your life. Do you keep in touch with Tom? Do you keep in touch with, with Cuba at all? Cuba, um, yeah. I, yeah, I've seen. As a matter of fact, he's come to my Super Bowl. He oh, ran across. He ran across one of my Super Bowl parties, shouting, "You know, show me the money!" I mean, it's been <laughs> twenty-five years now, and if I, uh, uh, I still go to the airport or I'm out to dinner, and someone runs up to the table and yeah. screams those four <laughs> words or right. say it. Was that was that something that actually happened in your life, or was that something they made up for the movie? So uh, we're at the league meetings, and Tim McDonald was a strong safety looking uh, for a team that would sign him, and Cameron was following that. And we were at the Palm Desert Marriott, and 
Cameron went up to Tim's room and Lou uh, Dobbs and Moneyline from CNN was on in the background. And Cameron asked Tim, what are you looking for in this uh, experience? Uh, what, do you, what do you want a team to, to do? He says, well, I'm looking for a team to show me some winning. I'm looking for a team to show me respect. I'm looking for a team to show me a great contract. And Cameron wrote, show me the money. Mm. Wow. That's a great story. That's beautiful. So let's let's finish up our time together with talking about your other projects. I know you're very, very involved with um, prevention of human trafficking. I know you're involved with uh, domestic violence. You're a, you know, a colleague of ours who she's been on the show, Michelle Jewsbury, and actually you and I were going to be speaking shortly and then she canceled something. But uh, you know, at, at her event, I know that those are very close to your heart. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and how how can we help you as listeners? How can we help you achieve more of what you want to achieve in making an impact? So um uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now is pretty interesting, which is there are breakthrough biomed projects um, that have to do with healing and performance. Yeah. And, and the first part of it has to do with the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been fighting uh, the good fight trying to bring prevention, awareness, and cure to the concussion issue. Mm -hmm. I had a crisis of conscience back in the 80s because the representing half the starting quarterbacks and they keep getting hit in the head. And we go to doctors who can't tell us how many are too many and what the magic number is when they should retire. So I started holding concussion conferences and I've held 17. And Finally, the neurologists were able to tell us uh, that three or more is a magic number and that after that, uh, there's a higher incidence of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, premature senility, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and um, wow. depression. And I called it a ticking time bomb and an undiagnosed health epidemic. And so I've been out there exploring, and I finally found there's a process called RTMS, which is magnets against the brain, that operates on the concept of neuroplasticity and can help uh, a, a brain recover from concussion. But it can also help you and my brain um, with faster neuro uh, processing and better memory. There's another process with Tommy Shavers called uh, uh, Nestry that does the same thing. It's brain training. And while I was doing that, I discovered uh, uh, all sorts of biofeedback, but also stem cells yeah. and um, uh, hyperbaric oxygen, light stem. So I'm taking these to pro sports, to uh, to college sports mm -hmm. to get players back to service quicker, help them in uh, at the end of games. But this also can help all the rest of us live longer and, and be um, uh, more cognitively fit. So it's a little bit like discovering the fountain of youth. So hey. these all are processes that I think can 
be a revolution in in uh, biomed. Yeah, so that's beautiful. The, I'm still trying to to roll back climate change, to to mm -hmm. fight against domestic violence and sex trafficking, to fight racism and against skinheads and white supremacists and uh, all the rest. Yeah. What can we what can we do in this in the neuroplasticity? What can we do in that realm to help you? How can we help increase awareness? Do you have a website that you want to have a million people come to and recognize and see? Do what can we do? Just uh, uh, go to Steinberg, Lee at Steinberg Speaks or to Steinberg Speaks uh, website and and uh, tune in because we'll be making announcements of uh, deals we've done and uh, uh, it's uh, Steinberg Speaks, one word, dot yep. com. Yep, and, I'm writing uh, it down so I have that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting started on another book. Um, that that'll be my third and uh, uh and what's this one going to be about this will be the agent the last one which was a new york times bestseller left off in 2014 so mm -hmm. in 2014 i was just coming out of early recovery not much had happened and so uh, uh this is big yeah yeah this is big now. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I love what you're doing. I, I love listening to you. That's why I've always chased you down when we're at a <laughs> because you really are making an impact in the world. You're making a lot, you know, putting your significance, your fingerprint into the big, you know, the big bad world. And I just thank you for that. I thank you. And I love watching you. I love hearing what, what more you have to say. I love looking at what you're working on and I follow you as you know, and I'm um, just delighted that we have finally had the chance to do this. So I want to ask you this, what would you like to leave us with? Um, you can all make a difference in the world in your own time, in your own way. And uh, uh, it's important because working together, we can make it a better world. Beautiful. Lee, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And I look forward to seeing you soon. I think I will see you at, at Secret Knock in March. I okay. look forward to seeing you there. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. taking the time. Appreciate it very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Success to Significance with Jen Duplessis, the number one podcast for people wanting to give more value and make an impact. Loved this episode? Be sure to subscribe right now at www.jenduplessis.com slash S2S for more stories, strategies, and thoughts to help you gain significance and success. And if you like what we're doing, don't forget to give us a rating and review so we can continue to bring you the best content possible. Join us next week for another breakthrough episode. Thank you for listening.